All right, this is where we're going to be this morning, and I want to ask a question. I want you to write the question down, and if you're taking notes, and I want you to write your answer down before I give you the answer. And the question is, what is your religion? What's your religion? And a follow-up, a part two to that would be, why? So as we're in Revelation this morning, chapter 17 and 18, it's dealing with God's judgment of Babylon. In chapter 17, it's, it's religious Babylon, and we'll give definition to that. And next week as we're in chapter 18, it's dealing with the economic, civic, governmental Babylon. So we'll sit in that subject matter next week. But in this idea, this, this question, what is your religion? And for those of you who get an A and 100% on the answer, and you answer Jesus, my religion is only to be bound to him who he is in his nature and character, then I'd, I'd follow that up with, what was your religion? And this is, this is the idea. So I'm going to give you a resource, and this can be a very obnoxious and offensive resource. Um, it's, I've never read through this whole thing. I've only fanned through it. I've sat in a lot of the subject matter over time. Uh, but this is called The Two Babylons. It's by Alexander Hislop. Um, this guy was a, uh, a Presbyterian, a Scottish Presbyterian pastor. And he is, the subject matter in the writing is that the Roman Catholic Church represents mystery, Babylon the Great, in chapter 17 of Revelation, where we are this morning. So this feeds into, this book was written, I think, in 1853. Um, the thoughts that he brings forth, they feed into a lot of our ideas in um, how we would discuss and treat many of the practices of the Roman Catholic Church, how those practices came into being, and then why we avoid a lot of those practices today in the church. For instance, how many of you guys know where Easter came from? So this is, this is one of these things that you gotta, you gotta, you, we have to be easy with. So he links Easter with Ishtar, which is a Babylonian Assyrian goddess um, the word Easter, and he's linking the word, the English word Easter with this pagan goddess, okay? The real word Easter, it comes from a German goddess. So the word that we have in English, Easter, comes from, it comes from German in our language today, and it revolves around a German goddess. So, but does anybody know where the Easter egg comes from? My, why do you hard boil eggs and dye these things and the Easter bunny and all these goofy things? Like, where did that come from? So this book, he walks in a lot of that subject matter. Now, you have to understand, so he is a Protestant uh, Presbyterian pastor in the 1850s, and if you want to sit in the Protestant Reformation, so you sit with Martin Luther, who writes his 95 points that he has issue with the Catholic Church. So remember, Luther was a Catholic priest, and he is taking offense to many of the things that the Catholic Church was engaged in in his culture and his time, and he nails those 95 points on the door not to stick it to the Catholic Church, but let's talk about this stuff. And then again, we just celebrated 500 years of the Protestant Reformation, I think in 2019, if my dates are correct. 
So there's a lot of history that feeds into this kind of conversation. He is not correct in a lot of historical points that he ties together. However, he is correct in bringing the ideas forward. Where do all of our religious practices come from? As we sit in this box this morning, you're sitting in a building that somebody built as a gymnasium. It's built as a church, but this is to be a multi-purpose room, and you look at the carpet on the floor, and I have no idea why anybody would ever play basketball on a carpet, but this is a basketball court. But we call it a what? What's this room called? It's a sanctuary. That's That's an Old Testament word that is identifying the tabernacle and the space in the tabernacle as the dwelling place of God. So we borrow a term from the Old Testament and we apply it today. How many of you ever heard the term, come to the altar? Where's the altar in this room? There is no altar in this room. We have an object of a cross that we look to as the ultimate altar where Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for the sins of humanity. So we point people to Jesus. But in this room, the only religious symbols that I know that we have is cross and this candlestick. Candlestick comes out of the Old Testament. God is light representing the Holy Spirit, and there's, there's a lot of imagery behind that. But I, when I ask this question, what is your religion? As you have grown up in or engaged in church culture, how much of that culture has anything to do with the narrative of the Bible? A lot of it has nothing to do with it. I'm, 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 I'm called a pastor by title that has a specific definition in the New Testament. But in regards to my role, I have, I have one specific command, and that is to feed the sheep. I am to give to you the word of God as your food. This is what you're to consume, and this only. And I'm warned against teaching the traditions of man and man stuff, right? But when we engage, and this is why I ask, like, what is your religion? A lot of people will say, well, I'm Catholic, I'm Methodist, I'm, I'm Calvary Chapel. I mean, go on down through the list of man definitions that we will overlay. I'm, I'm Protestant, I'm Reformed, I'm non-denominational. You know, when we use those terms, they, they have meaning to us, but often they have no meaning in the Word of God whatsoever. You sit in, in Catholicism, and again, a lot of the imagery, the pageantry, the buildings, the artifacts find their roots in pagan, idolatrous, man stuff that sometimes get redefined in the name of Jesus, and that can be okay, and it can be healthy as long as the definitions are correct. But often, you know, we have, we have one of the Ten Commandments that we're not to make a graven image. Like, we're not supposed to place before us an object that is going to interfere with our relationship with God where we are approaching that object as though it is God or as though it's interceding on behalf of us uh, in the name of God. You know, you can sit in like a rosary bead or, you know, lighting a candle. There's all these traditions that have nothing to do with the Word of God, uh, but they're presented as though here is a right relationship with God and here's what you have to do to make yourself right and keep yourself right. 
And I bring all of that up because we are going to listen to the seduction of those kind of ideas, behaviors, um, just within the body of Christ today. Like I, can, I can think of a couple right now that was part of this congregation, and the wife had a desire to participate in more of a liturgical con, uh, congregation. There's absolutely no sin in that. There's no issue with that whatsoever, but this was part of her upbringing. It's part of what she learned as, as a child in regards to her relationship with God. So that was someplace that was comfortable and familiar. So that's okay. So we don't want to throw stones where stones don't need to be thrown at all. So I want to have a lot of caution with this. When I first learned about all the different paganism in the Roman Catholic Church, I started hating Catholics. I got saved in Salt Lake City, Utah, where Mormonism is an absolute cult. It teaches lies about who God is, who Jesus Christ is. There's no compromise in that. But as I studied that information, I began to hate Mormons. Like I lose my love for the Lord. I lose my love for the people because I can't believe you believe this. And I can't believe you practice it. And, you know, I got puffed up in my own knowledge and what I was being taught. And it's been over time where God has really shown me his gentleness, his mercy, his patience, how, how he walks alongside of all of us and our messed up thoughts and our messed up ideas, and he always redirects us back to his son. Well, we've sat in this idea of Babylon for a little bit in Revelation. In chapter 14, there's an angel that's sent forth in chapter 8 that pronounces that Babylon is fallen, is fallen, but it's not here until chapter 17 uh, where this detail is beginning to occur in 17 and 18 of Revelation. So as we finished the bold judgments last week in verse 19 of chapter 16, it says, Now the great city was divided into three parts, our understanding that this is Babylon, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And now let's read a little bit here into 17, and we'll back up and give a lot of clarity just to my introduction and, and what's going on here in Revelation. So chapter 17, verse 1 says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment, the condemnation of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy, profanity, having seven heads and 10 horns. The woman was arrayed, she was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious or costly stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. And my sons always say to me, wait, what? 
And that's what I have written in my Bible. Because you say something, you see something, and that's my understanding. As John is given this vision, he's carried away. He sees this woman and this beast and, you know, all the circumstances that are declared. And you have John in astonishment saying, like, wait, what? And this, this is why. So when you sit with Babylon in the Bible, you have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 10. So Genesis chapter 10, this is after God has created the heavens and the earth. This is after Adam and Eve have sinned and been kicked out of the garden. This is after generations of men and women have, have been born. And in those generations, violence and evil is progressing to where God judges all of humanity. And in judgment, he executes every single human being except eight. Those eight come off the ark, and very specifically, the three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Out of those three brothers, this table of nations in chapter 10, all of humanity is propagated from these three, and there's 70 nations that are listed there in Genesis 10. One of those nations is founded by a man named Nimrod, who is a great-grandson of Noah through Ham and all the issues there with Ham, the Canaanites also. So there's, there's a lot going on there in relation to the nation of Israel. This man, Nimrod, we are told that he is the founder of the city of Babylon, and he is also the founder of the city Nineveh, which is where the Assyrian nation comes from. And then in Genesis 11 is that famous passage in regards to the Tower of Babel. But it says there in men's hearts, as, as they are seeking to do their own stuff, there is a foundation of a city and a tower. The city represents man's governments, man's ways, man's economy. And again, we're going to sit in that, uh, that judgment next week in Revelation 18. The tower represents man-made religion. So here is men seeking to build a tower to the heavens. And again, it's not like they're trying to get to the ultimate heights and build something as tall as possible. It's, it's this, they are worshiping the heavens. They are worshiping the creation. They are worshiping themselves. And in that system, we find the root of what we're told here that Babylon is the mother of all harlots. So when we sit in this idea of harlotry or prostitution, I'm going to keep it total G this morning so you adults can sit in the reality of that. The Bible uses that relationship and that circumstance to convey to us what idolatry is. God uses that to give to us an understanding of what it means and how offensive it is to him when we step outside of the relationship with him and we pursue a worship of anything that doesn't have, that's not him, period. So again, what is your religion? Our religion is a binding to Jesus Christ and a following of him and him alone, not subject to culture, to man's ways, to the teachings of men, the commandments of men. And again, we, we place in religion, we will place a lot of those things as, as necessities, and they will end up leading people away and often do lead people away from this. And this is, we talk about, uh, you know, Belief in God, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And in every relationship we have, there is a demand for submission. In, uh, in Ephesians 5, 21, before it starts to talk about husband, wife, parent, child, 
uh, slave, master, employee, employer relationships, there's a sentence in there that we are to submit to one another in the fear of God. And our relationship with God begins with submission. And in that submission, as we, as we submit to God, he demands sacrifice of us, right? He demands for us to die to ourselves, to take up our cross daily as we follow him. So there's a, there's a necessity that in our relationship with, with Jesus, as we submit to him, not to another, we're not sacrificing um, his truth so that we can adhere to man's ways. We are sacrificing man's ways so that we can be adhered and bound to him. And out of that position of sacrifice, he leads us into, into service, into serving him, into serving one another for his name's sake, whether that's preaching the gospel, whether that's giving a cup of cold water to somebody you need. And again, all the different spectrum of what that looks like in relationship. Um, how did I even get there? I don't know. We're talking about religion, right? We're talking about Babylon. I got there somehow. We'll just get back to the Bible. So Babylon, mystery religions, they find all their root there in Genesis. As you carry forward in the Bible, in the history of the nation of Israel, and as God has revealed himself to be the true and living God, as he calls Abraham out of that pagan culture of Ur, which is where Babylon is located. Abraham is called out of his idolatry to a true and living God. God reveals himself to Abraham. In, in the history there of, those, of the books of Moses, you have Israel that lands in Egypt. They end up landing in slavery in Egypt. And uh, all that illustration and discussion that we've already had in Revelation of God freeing the Jewish slaves from Egypt, so much of that imagery and the judgments that he pours out on Egypt are the same judgment that he's going to pour out in the future. As Israel lands in the promised land, as God leads them there, and as he's promised, Israel does what? They, they continue to turn back to idolatry. We watch this all throughout the Jewish history. Of There's this repetition of continuing to go back what was comfortable, what was learned, what the culture was preaching, what the king was doing. And in this, God constantly sends prophets with the word of God to call people out of her. And we're going we're gonna to listen. Uh, and next week in Revelation 18, there's a specific call to the church, to the body of Christ, to every single human being who wants to have a relationship with the true and living God. Come out of her. Come out of Babylon, her ways, her systems, um, all the falsehoods, all the seduction that's there, all the pleasure that is there. But in that, Israel continues to return to those things that he ends up using first the Assyrians, again, that Nimrod was a founder of, and all their pagan religions. He uses the Assyrians to come down as using that wicked pagan nation as the tool of chastisement to his children, to the northern ten tribes. You can sit in that in Isaiah. And then he uses Babylon to be that same tool of judgment and chastisement against his wayward children 
He uses this wicked pagan nation, Babylon. But when Babylon comes down, they destroy the temple. You know, they carry away their artifacts. They carry away the people. Very specific imagery, very specific reality, and very specific impact upon the nation of Israel when they were carried away into captivity. And you know, all of this information, it feeds into the culture of the New Testament, that when Jesus arrived, it feeds into that cry for savior and you know, deliverance from pagan Roman oppressors at the time of Christ. It feeds all the way into our culture today where we're crying for salvation from anything that is not God that he would save us and deliver us from. So all of this, all this imagery of Babylon, it has very specific flavor, ideas all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament and into today. She is identified again here as this, the mother, so she's the source of any um, promiscuous and illicit relationship outside of a true relationship with God. She is seen as the source of all of these rituals and practices that bring about filth in regards to a relationship with God and not purity, which Jesus brings into uh, brings us and gives to us his purity. So back in verse 1, the angel is saying to John, come, I'm going to show you the condemnation and the judgment of this, of this great harlot. And it uses this, this imagery again of a harlot committing fornication, this, these illicit acts um, the inhabitants of the earth, they're made drunk. There's an intoxicating factor. So when you think of somebody who is inebriated or intoxicated, there's a lack of self-control. There's a lack of ability to be able to walk a straight line, right? You sit in the sobriety test. What's one of the things that you do? Can you walk the straight line? And no, you're inebriated. So spiritually, you can't walk the straight line in following Jesus if you're intoxicated with the falsehoods of these, this very enticing behavior. I am, how many of you guys have ever read any of Francine Rivers' novels? Anybody? All right. I'm listening to Redeeming Love right now. Um, so Francine Rivers, she's, she's just, she's incredibly talented, but she takes biblical narratives and applies a fictional story to it to help, to help you sit in the story. I'm listening to a book right now called Redeeming Love, and it's taking the story of the prophet Hosea and his marriage to his wife Gomer, and his wife Gomer was a prostitute. He married this woman at the command of God, and this woman continues to leave the relationship, and God tells her, him to continue to pursue her to bring her back. It's an incredible story, and again, this, this book is called Redeeming Love, how she's sitting in the fiction of it. She's applying it in, you know, 1850s gold rush in California. But I'm sitting in this, this narrative and description of what would the life be of a woman who is engaged in this behavior. You know, how did, how did she get there? What kind of scars and damage have been inflicted upon her? As she's being exposed to the love of a man who is sent by God to love her, how is she rejecting that? How is she bumping up against that? What are the fears of her receiving that love and walking that out? So she's using 
fiction and this narrative to describe, again, so many of God's attributes towards us. Because again, I have to confess to you and you have to confess to me. There are so many thoughts that I have, actions that I've pursued that demonstrate the behaviors of a harlot in my relationship with God. And what does God continue to do with me every single day? He doesn't cut me off. He doesn't kill me. He pursues me. There are some times where he has chased me down and he has snatched me from a fire. There are other times where he has let me get burned and let me come back to him on my own. But always, and again, this is, this is what I was praying about earlier. Man, if you don't know the love of God, I, pr I pray that day in and day out, you are supernaturally, physically, emotionally, in your mind, in your heart, and in your spirit, that you, you grow and mature in your understanding of the depths of his love, which are beyond our knowledge. This is our prayer in Ephesians 3. So I'm sitting in this narrative describing this profession and this woman as I'm sitting here now in these same words in Revelation 17, discussing what it is about the, the enticements of Babylon the Great. And one of the things that I, that I wrote down in my, in my notes is it's, it's when this kind of woman approach in this relationship, so again, I'm keeping it G, um, it's what do you want? What do you want me to be? And again, you sit, you sit in like consumer religion. And again, we are consumers in America. We are marketed with all different kind of options. And as we engage in life, often we're, we're processing through the filter of marketing. But so often there are, there's a, the smorgasbord of religion and it's, it's, you're asking that question kind of in a lot of ways, like, what do I want? What do I want in a church? What do I want in a community? What, what do I want? And there are so many alluring, seductive ideas, actions, communities that will lead you away from the Lord and ended up leading you to the footstep, doorstep of hell, so to say. You can sit in Proverbs. I, I don't remember how many chapters, but it's about the first 10 chapters of Proverbs. There is the warning of Solomon, the wise man, to his son in regards to uh, having caution with these illicit relationships. Now sit and then go read those same passages, not just in uh, a role between a man and a woman in the flesh, but sit in it in regards to religion, as God is saying that this woman, that this seductress, these ideas, these practices, there is a seduction, there is a, an offer of come to me and I'll give you what you want. What do you want me to be? I will be that for you. And we go out and we find those things. Again, the, the contrast with the gospel is, and the contrast even in Revelation, is we're given another woman, we're given a couple other women to look at. In Revelation 12, we're given that the nation of Israel represents the woman who brings forth the Messiah. She is standing in contrast to this woman here in Revelation 17. And then ultimately, when God creates the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21, the contrast there is the bride of Christ. 
The contrast in Revelation 19, when Jesus comes, right before Jesus comes, there's the marriage supper of the Lamb. So these women are being given to us as a contrast in our religion, in our relationship with the Almighty God who created the heavens and the earth. And we have to confess, there's, there's such a seduction to our flesh come in and be appeased, to come in and be comfortable, to come in and get what you want, um, that we think are going to satisfy, that we think are going to satiate, and we're told here they end up bringing about inebriation. The, it brings about the inability to be able to walk with God. These things are described as abominations. They are loathsome to God uh, because they interfere in our relationship with him. They are defined as filth. It is not something that cleanses us and clothes us in his righteousness. It's something that causes us to be impure and filthy. Let's go on to verse 7. The angel said to me, why did you marvel? And again, really, really quick before we go on, this, this last thought. So when you're sitting in this, this end-time entity that's being called Babylon, um, there are many who would, uh, you know, say, you know, it's, it's, it is the Roman Catholic Church. And there is a partial truth to that, but it's also the Orthodox Church. It's also the Protestant church. It's also the non-denominational church. What is seen here is this woman that is riding the beast is, it is false religion in all of its forms, consolidating under essential power at the end in all of that seduction, in all that seduction that as we've already read, promotes the worship of the Antichrist but there comes a point in the middle when the Antichrist declares himself to be God that even the Antichrist turns on, on, on this entity. And it's seen as, again, the apostate church where they're naming the name of Jesus, but they have really fallen away and are not adhering to the truth in that relationship at all, but are sitting in all of these abominations. So this comes out in verse 7. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her. So again, she's riding on this beast. This beast is carrying her, uplifting her. The beast is identified as the same one that we saw earlier on, one that comes out of the pit, two that comes out of the land, identified as the Antichrist, whether it's an individual, whether it's an empire. Sorry to make your eyes go cross. There's lots of definition here, which has seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition, which is destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life of the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. I don't like it when God says that because usually what comes afterward, I'm left in less clarity than before. So walk with me here. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. 
Now, this is what lends a lot of weight to the interpretation of Rome. Rome was founded upon seven hills, and you can go look at the geography of Rome, and you can go find the name of these seven hills. And again, language-wise, they're specifically hills. Here it's talking about mountains. Mountains often in the Bible are symbols for government. So again, we have to have caution. Is this Rome? Is this the revived Roman Empire? Is this the Roman Catholic Church? Again, there's, there's, there's fuzziness here, okay? So the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other is yet to come. I've sat in this definition a few times with you as we've gone through Revelation. And the question is, are these seven specific kings or are they seven specific kingdoms? If they're kings, we don't have a clue. And this is why. So if Revelation was given to John roughly in the 60s, that means that Nero was the emperor at the time that this was written. So that gives a list of seven kings and you have to jump over others and it it gets confusing. If this revelation was given to John in the 90s when Domitian was the emperor, then there's a list of other seven kings and it gets even confusing there. So the names don't really fit. For me, how I I sit in understanding just in the reading, I think that it's referring to kingdoms, that the five kingdoms that have fallen would be, and again, these are kingdoms that are dealing with God's kids, that have influenced God's kids away from God, that have oppressed God's kids, so the nation of Israel specifically. So the five that have fallen would be Egypt, in order, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the one that is would be the Roman Empire, and the one that's going to be the seventh one that's defined here, we believe is the revival of an empire with, and again, you have to sit in Daniel with this, we sit in Revelation with this, and then that seventh empire we're going to read here in just a second, there, there is an eighth, which we believe is the Antichrist, that's of the seven. And yes, I'm just as cross-eyed as you, so this is why we sit in big themes, because when you get to the nitty-gritty, we have a lot of I think, but maybe not. So, and when he comes, he must also continue a short time. So again, we believe that this is the final week of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9 gives this prophecy of this last seven years. The beast that was and is, is not is himself also the eighth in reference to the Antichrist and his, and his kingdom is, is of the seven and is going into perdition. So all of these man kingdoms, all of these governments, religion that stands in opposite, opposition to God is all going to destruction. Verse 12, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings. Uh, you sit in, again, in Daniel chapter 2, you have Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the, st- the statue. The ten toes are often referred to these ten kings. Another prophecy in Daniel, you also have ten horns, thought to be, by interpretation, the same discussion, uh, same reference. So these ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour. So this very limited time as kings with the beast. These are of one mind. They will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb. And the lamb 
will overcome them, have victory. Why? Because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Hold on to that sentence. We're going to come back. Verse 15 says, Then he said to me, The waters which you saw, where the harlot sits, are peoples, multitudes, nations, tongues, or languages. The ten horns which you saw on the beast... These are going to hate the harlot, detest the harlot, and make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman who you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So this is, there are ideas here that you can sit in in all of human history and how those who are religious in man's systems, how they attempt to manipulate those in government power to, for, they use their own seduction in, in the power that they have over the people to get power over governments, and that feeds into the opulence and the riches of those who pursue riches through religion and power through religion, but it's always a... a uh, a difficult relationship between religion and the civic government because civic governments have always used religion to, for the same purposes, for power, for pleasure. And again, we, we watch this today. We can watch this in our own nation as regardless of what party they are attempting to manipulate and use the body of Christ in whatever fashion they can to retain power, to get their way, to get their will, to get money. And we sit in all of these ideas. And that's what's going to be in its ultimate fulfillment in this one religion, in this one government. They're going to be merged together. They are going to promote one another, but we are told, and we believe it's at the middle when the Antichrist declares himself to be God, that at that time, there will be no other worship of any other gods other than the Antichrist, other than the beast. And again, this is the mark and all of the ideas that we've already studied, that that will be the time when the government will turn against the religion and murder and slaughter as many as possible. We talked about how horrific. But when we get into the definition of what true religion is and who it's in, it goes back to verse 14. Whether it's fallen angels, whether it's human beings, those who are in opposition, in war with the Lamb, in war with God, whether that's trying to take up physical arms, whether that's just standing in opposition to the Lord's ways, regardless of what that looks like, Jesus will have victory because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those who are with him are what? Called, chosen, and faithful. So just sit in, sit in these words in regards to there is a being who has created you. In your time, in your place, male, female, your circumstances, he's ordained it all. He's made, he's made you. And this simple word that he has called you, you know, for me, he's called my name Blake. And he does it, he does it daily. But there's been 
a historical pursuit of this being of me as a creature. He's called me. He used people to call me. He used his word to call me. He used circumstances of my life, good, bad, or indifferent, to call me, to continue to speak my name of come. Come and see. Come and follow. And again, there's, there's, there's nothing in me that demands God's attention. There's nothing in me that says, oh, here's, here's a good guy. Let me call this one, right? But this, this, the reality that in my religion, in my relationship with Jesus, the Son of God, the Lord and Lords and the King of Kings, he has called me and he has called you. Many are called. All are called. And he calls out. And what are we to do with that calling? What do we do with those life experiences? Whether it's a conversation, whether it's a sermon, a message that you've listened to, a book that you've read, a circumstances of life, you're sitting in the Bible, you hear him call. What are you to do with when you know your creator is speaking to you? What do you do? You turn in or you turn away? Jesus, I hear you. I say, this week, sitting, and again, I'm, I'm sitting in this chapter, I'm sitting in, like, I can, I can get really mad against people who falsely proclaim the name of Jesus. You know, I want, there's sometimes I want to pick up stones and throw them as hard and fast as I can. You with me? And then we confess those things. And, and again, I'm, I'm sitting in a book, I'm sitting in a narrative, I'm sitting in other relationships in life, I'm, look, I'm looking at the mirror, and God, I can't believe that you called this harlot. I can't believe that you put up with me in your household. I can't believe as a, as a parent you haven't beaten me to death. Because I deserve it. My sin, the wages of my sin deserves death. And I experience his, his redemptive love that, that he, is, he has gone into the cesspool of humanity. And the cesspool that I found myself in, and he's called my name. And I couldn't get myself out of that, but I responded to him. And I continue to respond to him. Where I've been called. So in the, in the calling, in that, in that idea, there is a demand for our response. Your free will. You have a choice. But not only are we called, we're what? We're chosen. And in this idea of chosen, this is the idea of election. This is, this is the reality that you have no option. Before God created the heavens and the earth, he chose you. He elected you. Has nothing to do with yourself. You are his. And he is making you to be exactly who he desires you to be. You are chosen. So which is it? Did God choose me or did I choose him? Yeah. And I love this last word. What is it? Those who are with the Lamb, those who abide in his victory, they are called, they are chosen, and were what? Faithful. Are you faithful? I stink. 
I really, I really do. I can't believe how quick my mind can turn away from the beauty of my Savior. In the midst of worship, in the midst of reading his word, has your mind ever been out in the cesspool? So how is it that we are faithful? This is something that he makes us to be. I can't, I can't in myself well up the power and the ability to be, fa- to be faithful, to be trustworthy, to do what he says, to not do what he says, to, to obey, to have my mind his mind, to have my heart his heart, to have my behaviors his, like in myself, in a religion, in, in a man's 10-step program, I find zero success. And if you want detailed testimony, I can give you detailed testimony of how long I can remain faithful in my flesh, not very long. This is why we sit with, you know, an, an image and a reminder of God's Holy Spirit dwells within us. I am now, through faith in Jesus Christ, a temple, a dwelling place of the Creator. Not in and of myself, but He has made me to be what I am not. He has made me to be a son. He has made me to be His bride. I have and hold on to the promise which I am told that will bring about purity in my relationship with him that I am hoping to see him face to face one day in confidence because he is going to make me to be what I need to be to abide, to truly abide and dwell with my creator for all eternity. This, is, this gets back to that original question of just what's your religion? Why, why do we hold on to and participate in anything that doesn't have to do with the name of Jesus. I, I love Wednesday nights. We're sitting in Wednesday nights just going through a gospel, the gospel of Luke right now. You just you sit walking with our Savior and watching him interact with other human beings and talking about it and discussing. There's such freedom there. There's no pompery, you know, it's not the clothes, it's not the building, it's, it's not the, uh, you know, again, the 10 steps and those kinds of things. It's just here is the almighty God who humbled himself to become just like you and me, to live the lives that we live, to live in lack, to live in absolute dependence of the Father, to offer himself as a, as a payment for something that is impossible for us to pay for. And that what it is that he is, who it is that he is, what it is that he did and does and will do is the image that he is bringing about in our life day in and day out. And again, this God, you're faithful, you're worthy. So Lord, as we sit in the truth of your word, we want, we want to be free from Religious ideas, we all have histories. We have those things that mom and dad taught. We have those things that the culture taught. We have those things that uh, we want to define, well, this is what Christian religion is. And Lord, anything that is not sourced in you, we are asking that you would expose to us, Lord, so that we would be aware and so that we would let go, that there would be no... 
illicit and adulterous and filthy relationship and ideas in our lives, Lord. We trust that you are the one who has cleansed us. We trust that you are the one who keeps us clean. But again, Lord, when I, when I sit in just my own mind, I'm personally offended. And I know that you know me better, Lord. I know your love. I know how faithful you've been. I know your pursuit of me. But I know that there's, uh, you have a greater work to do in my life. You have a greater work to do in all of our lives. And Lord, I'm asking that you help me to be, to be radical in cutting out of thoughts, just behaviors, whether, you know, TV, movies, magazines, news, whatever it may be, Lord, that's, that has nothing to do with you, Lord, that you'd carve those things out of my life. You promised me freedom in you, and I know that it's there, and liberty, and victory, and hope, and joy. I give you thanks, Lord, for all of that that you've already brought into my life, and it makes me yearn for more. I yearn to be further clothed in your righteousness. So, Lord, receive our worship, receive our gratitude, our thanks, receive our praise. Thank you for investing in us, Lord, for pouring out yourself for us, for pouring yourself into us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.